Tomorrow. A northerner has been accused tomorrow. of terrorizing London by walking around tomorrow. saying hello. It's a South African company, though. It's like it makes Portuguese chicken, and a cheeky Nando's is like it's like you're not supposed to. Ah, oh, it's, it's hard to describe, but you know what I'm talking about. It's going to the convenience store when like it's laid out. You're drunk, yeah. cross faded. Like, I get it. Yeah. I get it. It does seem to be this thing that I see with British people a bit more, where like they they, they like to feel like they're getting away with something somehow. Yeah, maybe. You know what I mean? But so, but so do we because we're convicts, but we're British convicts, so. Well, mostly. Um, oh, yeah, no. who watches The Watchmen? That's right. I think Cleo's passed out, dude. Yeah, he shouldn't have had the um, the third... What, what do they drink in England? I think they drink a lot of things. Usually beer? It's true. Ales? They have Fosters, they have Fosters on tap. I've never had it before. Actually, no, I have. Um, well, what are we going to uh, do now? Yeah, we're, um, yeah, we're supposed to ask more questions. Did you notice that... Um, well, I went to the bathroom before, and I went out to try to find that kebab stand, and like it was just... There's just more bar, I think. So, I think we might be stuck in the eternal weather spoons. Damn it. Well, actually, no, no, wait, I have an idea, I have an idea. Uh, I, I think this may, I think this may work out, um, may, this may be, uh, beneficial to us, actually. Are there any occultists in the building? Okay, shit, there's like four of them. Um, you, you, uh, Me? Uh, I apologize for being a tourist here, but yeah, you get, you get over here, we'd like to ask you some questions if you don't mind. <laughs> You foreigners? Well, the accent didn't tip you off. Is this locals only? <laughs> well, you're not going to be local unless you live here 20 years. Where is this? We're in an infinite span of Weatherspoons. What is local to this? That depends on what you what you believe it is. Uh, I take it your uh, your friend here, he's uh, had a little too much to drink? Yeah, I maybe so have we, but not as little too much as he has. Well, uh, pleasure to meet you two. Uh, don't normally get too many people trapped in there. The eternal weather spoons around here. Most people can find the door. There's a skeleton at the bar. Oh yeah, it's Phil. I thought he was like a marionette. Is he still conscious? Don't talk too loudly about Phil. He doesn't like it when you, you point things out about him. Well, you, I mean, like, okay, if he's a skeleton, then how does he hold together, right? There must be some sort of string, marionette-like string system involved. I've never asked. Then, yeah, I, I apologize, apologize, man. I may, uh, I, I may be asking some personal questions. I was just about to minesweep his uh, half-drunk Guinness, so I'm glad you told me that. Do you guys have that expression, minesweeping? I haven't heard it myself. Is it one of those... Uh... Yeah, <laughs> it's when you steal beers. <laughs> oh, right. It's minesweeping. We just call it stealing, stealing beers. Yeah, yeah, we, we do that a lot. Yeah, likewise. Uh, well, it's nice to meet somebody here who uh, has a little bit of know-how about things. So, uh... Pleased to meet you. You can call me obtuse. Yeah, that sounds about right for these circles. Uh, pleasure. I'm Frank. This is Thompson. So, uh, what can I do you for? Well, I, I think we just have a few questions. We've, uh, we, we blew into town, um, earlier today through a very convoluted and wacky series of events. But we've just been kind of going around, uh, trying to get a bit of a lay of the land of the, I, I believe you still call it a cult underground in these parts, yeah? Pretty much, um, the honest underground. 
the true ways, the old oh, path. I do like honest underground. That's pretty good terminology. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I can I can get behind that. It, um, we we already spent a while talking with um our friend who is now uh, slumped over on the bar. Uh, to but I mean we we were supposed to be asking some more questions before he got interrupted with this whole uh, drinking thing. Uh, but since it came to mind, um, that and it's a bit late now to continue uh, interviewing him. Hey, you're around. Um, Torm, is there anything you want to ask him? Um, most of my well, questions are uh, alcohol-related right now, actually. That's true. Also, whose round is it? Who shout? Is, did you say round or shout in the UK? Ah, uh, both's good. I mean, if you're buying, you can call it whatever you like. Aha, uh -huh. that, that, that makes sense. So, I guess, what, what sort of, uh... Info were we not able to get out of Cleo? Let's start there. I would like to know a little bit more about, because we have talked about how magic developed over time in the United States and other parts of the world. I wonder if there's any, if there's been any sort of, a, yeah, history of um, the occult underground or the honest underground, the honest history of the underground. Well, I can't guarantee telling you an, an honest history of the underground, because that's about the only thing you're going to find that's dishonest here. But I suppose you could split it into about five stages. The five stages of, of English magic. How, how well do you know? You're obviously well knowledgeable on this, but before World War II, before you had your postmodern magic, everything was secret societies, your druids, your table wrapping, tarot cards, your old magic style. And that, that's still your around. Modern magic your modern modern magic. Yeah. Um, we tend to call them um, authentic thaumaturgy. Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds pretty legit. Up until about World War Two, you had that. It was it was very cliquish. Even during World War One, that era, we still had mostly just uh, secret societies, druidic cults, and that sort of thing. Yes, that that's the time of Crowley, your uh, Talima, your Triple uh, A, your uh, all those organizations. Very very specifically based on a social construct, uh, being together as a group rather than individualism. That's pretty interesting, then actually, because. Um... I know, like, on most parts of the world, you have, um, the early postmodern magic happening even in, like, the mid-19th century. Yeah. No, clockworks and whatnot. It's, I consider class... It's not well, really postmodern. I thought it was, like, a... It's hard, because I sort of feel that there is, like, a period of modernist magic. It uses that charging about. structure, yeah. and that's kind of... The, the, the charge is kind of, I think, the um, big characteristic of postmodern magic. At least, you know, adept magic and whatnot. Though, yeah, there, there's certainly uh, an argument to be made that adept magic is not inherently postmodern. I have, sort of have this idea that, like, the magic in this sort of time period, um, if there is an idea of, of um, modernist magic versus postmodernist, I wonder if it is, like, because in postmodernist, each adept sort of has their own sort of way of looking at the world. Um, very idiosyncratic, very personal, very relativistic, and I'm wondering if in like the modernist era when you had, you sort of had the adept cults like the cryptomancers and uh, these early ones who, and maybe even um, the catamancers as well, I wonder if in that time period it was less individualistic and more like we are the secret group that has the truth, yeah, that and we have rationalized sense. it and categorized it. But even then, you started seeing guys like that popping up in other parts of the world, definitely before World War II. It starts late 19th, early 20th century, but... Um, well, you could say that the modernist period of magic might have been a product of the Enlightenment onwards. True, true. But thinking about the UK specifically, what have we got? Yeah, so it's not, it's not to say that there weren't individual magicians. It's that there was a, a social idea of magic in 
you know, you've always had cunning men and an English shaman um, or shaman, however you want to pronounce it. Um, but there was a that that sort of Tolkien type nostalgia for an England that a pre-industrial England created an idea of like um, druids. Druids obviously died out a long time ago, but people moved together, and this continued even after, for the most part, World War Two. That's the second stage of, of modern magic in English in English history. Uh, that in 1945 to about 1970, you started seeing a splitting away, this rise of individualism, and still anti-progress in some ways, traditionalist anti-American, but these individuals who were created by World War II became increasingly besotted with the idea of themselves as heroic figures. Um, if you look at World War II, uh, particularly with like an entropomancy and things, you had famous people like uh, uh, David Sterling. He created the SAS in World War II. Very heroic group of soldiers, you know, single-minded commandos, survived by their wits on their own. And after the war, they found themselves completely unable to fit into society. And unsurprisingly, a number of them who survived the war entered magic, the magical realms of, uh, of England. And then they became quite powerful figures, even if they didn't know that they were themselves magicians. All right, interesting. Um, sounds, I mean, the, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is sort of the militia movements you have and have after Vietnam, the United States. Disillusioned guys coming back, looking for a sense of meaning, often finding it to a certain degree in groups, but also like a very um, iconoclastic sense of individualism. Yeah, very similar. The difference is that in the UK, they didn't become militia because they didn't feel that they were let down by the government. Many of them became mercenaries and went to Africa, got involved in colonial wars across the globe. And it created this new wave of um, violent, but pro-governmental, pro-empire. I, I wouldn't know how to describe it specifically, but, but um, it, it's a mentality that's quite uniquely English in, in what came about. And, and it did shape um, English society and the occult underground. It did sweep away a lot of the the traditional druidic and secret society groups. Um, they could not keep up with it. They were unable to compete with this new wave of young, very radical figures who had made their way into government and were calling the shots. Interesting. So it's sounding like in the UK, especially in this time period around um, post-World War II, uh, 50s to uh, 70s or so, um, that there was a decent amount of overlap between the occult underground and the apparatus of government in the UK. There was an overlap? There's always been an overlap. In, in many ways and I think even in America there's probably an overlap I, I'm not an expert on, on your underground but um, I'm sure there are individuals who are involved oh yeah there are just, just ask Alex Jones well yeah Alex Jones says that that Venn diagram is a circle the UK subsumed a lot it, it doesn't mean that the government honestly knew what was going on I suspect that a lot of people who were tapping into this contradiction in themselves um, being chaotic self-fulfilling, self-idealizing, self-actualizing, and yet at the same time very heavily tied into imperialism, into traditional English myths of self. Um, that, that contradictory nature became the, the battery 
for their magic in many ways. How, how did this link in with the mods versus rockers riots, <laughs> if at all? Um, yeah, I mean, and the Teddy Boys in the 50s. Um, yes, Teddy Boys. Teddy yep. Boys are um, interesting because, of course, they dressed up like um, George and the Ned Wardians with these big rough collars and these pompadour hair and, uh, and carried around knives and, and cut up cinemas and slashed policemen. Um, it's, it's this weird wave of traditionalism. Um, looking back to an old era, um, a very violent era. There's, there's a very dark streak that runs through the English psyche. Um, it's why they invented manners, um, because they cut your throat if they couldn't do you. So you, you bring up this sort of very unique English sentiment far as English identity and imperialism. Um, how would you say that sentiment differs... Uh, without going down too much of a rabbit hole, how that sentiment differs from your kind of bog-standard uh, patriotism, quasi-nationalism. Imperialism in the UK, I mean, it was paternalistic, and it could definitely be racist, but it was a different feeling from traditional nationalism. It wasn't that our country is superior, it was our empire is superior. British Empire, this, this empire mentality, it really only lasts until about the 1970s. And it gets swept away by changes in government, by a feeling that empire um, is no longer something that should be talked about. But before that point, within the, the underground and, and in general, um, yeah, it wasn't nationalistic in the same way that many other countries' nationalism is. There was no sense that, or there was very little sense that it was our country is superior. It was our empire is superior. And while it could be paternalistic and it could be racist, it was very different from the very gung-ho, as you know, in America, or the, say, the white Australian movement in Australia, where it's, this is our land, this is our people. Oddly enough, that, that really only starts to appear in the 1980s. And funnily enough, that is when you see another break in the, in the occult underground or the, the honest underground. Um, the 1980s is the rise of Thatcher, individualism, uh, pro-libertarian, anti-classist. Anti-classist in the sense that Thatcher wanted to sweep away the idea that there were a working poor and, and a rich. Anybody could rise up, anybody be could become a, uh, a stockbroker. And anybody who was a stockbroker who couldn't do their job deserved to be dropped down to the lower levels of, uh, of society. And... That very heavily hit the UK um, and, the, and the underground. It created a, a new wave of, of magical thinking. This is interesting because I was thinking, as you were mentioning before, about sort of um, the anti-Americanism in the 1950s and that sort of the attitudes they had in the 1950s. And I was wondering if it ties in with the sleepers neutralization of New York. Um, and like because New York and the differences in the occult undergrounds in the, in the American occult underground, especially in the optimistic 1950s in America, and I'm wondering if that tied in somehow with the sleepers making the decision to magically nuke New York City. And now you're bringing up this, and I'm thinking this ties in with Wall Street a lot. Was this New York City's revenge? It's quite possible. I don't know a huge amount about the sleepers. Have you? You've, you've been to Gleason House. You've seen what's happened to it. In the last few years, strapped. But what little's left of it. I, I've heard that there is another Gleason house somewhere else, or somewhere else. That cost you a bit more than a couple of pints to find out about that one. Um, <laughs> All right. But yeah, um, at the end of the day, the 
destruction of uh, the occult underground in New York. It, it's an interesting parallel to the failure of the sleepers or whoever it was to remove the the underground corruption that was going through London in the 1950s and 60s, in which you had open occult gang warfare. And why did they not hit London when supposedly they hit New York? The revenge idea does make sense, though. My guess for that sort of thing is that New York was far, much further removed from the sleepers, centers of power, and not influence. at the time. It was it was considered oh. one of the um, centers of super power up until the 1970s, according to Hush Hush. Interesting. And then it was oh. left going. Um, and I'm wondering if they just sort of yeah, but it's it. not as close to their headquarters, you know. Like the they can reach out and poke at that and fuck with that and not really get messed with too much in return. Whereas, if Gleason House fucks with somewhere in London, then London can fuck him right back. That's true, yeah. And it's like, New York is not as far away as, like, LA, or other centers of uh, American magical power, like even Chicago uh, might be too much, but New York, maybe... Yeah, it's kind of right in that sweet spot of close enough that they can lean on it a bit, but far enough that it can't really lean back. I just really like the idea of like these um, 1950s mafiosos having their strings pulled by like nefarious British occultists. Well, you've also got to recognize that like uh, a lot of Manhattan is actually owned by the Queen and by uh, supposedly by Oxbridge oh. uh, universities. Interesting. There's a there's a, a long term conspiratorial argument that uh, America is England's petri dish. It's an experiment into uh, all the things that were developed by. John Locke and uh, all the philosophers to see whether it would work on a grand scale. Your constitution is an experiment. Well, I've had this thought actually. It, I mean, think about it. George Washington, British general. Come on. <laughs> well, he would have been King George the First of uh, America if it had gone through properly. Don't forget. Yeah, we were real close to having a uh, royal dynasty. Also, the, the first American flag, the stripes and the stars are based upon the East India Company. Which of course is uh, was wasn't part of the the, the Anglo Indian occult underground that was thriving in the air 1790s um, and continued up until of course it was defeated in the uh, 1840s or so and was turned over to the crown. Um, but the East India Company was definitely a, a rival to the royal family in England and, and had its own magicians um, ritual. Thaumaturgical magicians, uh, the uh, the intermarriage between high-ranking British and Indian families is still felt today in the occult underground. You can see that now with the Tory party. Sure, sure. I think I think we're thinking of a different kind of Indians here. Oh, oh shit. Are we? Okay, never mind. Wait, no, we're not. No, he was talking about the East India Company. Well, Come the on. East India Company also operated in the United States. No, it was the Hudson Bay Company. I'm fairly certain it will operate in the United States as well. The East India Company did operate uh, as a trade. It, it's They were the, the owners of the uh, tea that was thrown into Hudson Bay. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, all right, all right. But they were very small. All right. So, okay. So we've had we've had that problem where we get our Indians confused. I thought we were above this, guys. <laughs> it's more confusing with the British because they've... They've had the most um, the most extensive relationships with uh, both groups. The most extensive relationship with people that could conceivably be called Indians, including <laughs> West Indians and people in Indonesia 
and everywhere else that could yeah, a lot of Indians. people have been called Indians. It turns out, Britain is probably uh, at least a little bit to blame for that. I think. Um, so okay, um, in the so in the seventies and onwards, there is this um, very individualist and quasi-libertarian sense to British culture and that um, kind of, for lack of a better word, trickles down to the uh, honest underground in certain ways. But, I mean, from what we're seeing recently, as limited as it's been, that doesn't seem to be the case now. No. So, Thatcher is, uh, is cast out of government um, eventually in the uh, the early 90s and up until 97 this this libertarian system continues and around about the year 2000 2001 um, you start seeing the big shift that the new England the new honest underground cool Britannia cool Britannia um, and you've got you've got Tony Blair playing guitar with uh, with Oasis it's um, it's all very embarrassing um, but yeah, um, the war on terror, America become America becomes the dominant partner, and the world flips. The pivot of power flips. Um, the UK, up until around two thousand one, two thousand four, two thousand five, it had been a very separate existence from the US. Sure, there had been some cross pollination, but anti Americanism. Um, or the anti the American ideal of magic, this sort of giving it to the world, seeing magic as as blowing open the doors of perception, that didn't exist in the UK except among very small individual groups. Most people in the uh, the underground in the UK hoarded power for its own sake, and then nine eleven and everything else that came after it, the uh, the the occult wars that occurred. That spread across the globe in the aftermath um, people realized that they they had to band together and that's when you start seeing an anglo-american faction beginning to appear in the in the underground interesting because yeah how you've characterized your guys's underground uh, thus far is that um, the members of said underground seem to be far less estranged from popular culture and far less disenfranchised compared to occult undergrounds you'll see in other parts of the world. The UK has had a... The UK has always been more eccentric and more accommodating and accepting of... Even when things were illegal, um, there were always ways around it. And by... Um, being subsumed it's it's like the whole uh, in America you've got the goths and the hot topic sort of idea that it became cool to be goth back in the early 2000s yeah and the UK you have the similar sort of thing with punk um, the mods and the rockers um, the idealization of the working class in the 1980s the fact that everybody wanted to own their own house everybody wanted their kid to go to a private school everybody wanted to become rich in the 1980s did not hide the fact or that it was it was subsumed into this idea that also the working class were being screwed over didn't mean that anybody really cared it was just cool to believe it 
if if does that make sense? In a... No, yeah, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. There, um, a lot of those disenfranchised sentiments became mainstream in such a way it is to render them toothless. Yeah, and particularly in the occult underground. The UK occult underground of that time had been, I wouldn't say it was, um, too much has been put onto the idea of class in the UK. You'd be hard pushed to recognize a lord or a lady on the street. If you walk in London or any other city, you'll probably bump into or rub shoulders with them going to a sandwich bar, a pub. You wouldn't recognize them unless they are dressed up for their big events. And the same with OBEs and, and knighthoods. Traffic wardens or uh, school teachers get these for good work in the UK. And so you, you end up with this um, belief, at least in the outside world, that the occult underground in the UK is very much a class-based system. It's actually the opposite. It has in many ways been leveled. It's a place where housewives rub shoulders with lords. The only thing that separates them from anyone else is that they are both magicians. It is not so much a at least the people that I know in the in the occult underground. That's interesting because uh, our passed out friend here was telling us the exact opposite. I, I think it depends on, on where you live and how you exist within that world. I think that it's definitely the case that certain pockets or areas of the UK... For instance, like I give you the example of if you're in London and you're in Westminster, where uh, Houses of Parliament are, people say, oh, I've never met my, you know, I've never met a minister, I've never met an MP. And it's like, well, your, your local MP, your member of parliament in the UK, every week holds what's called a surgery. And you can literally just walk in and speak to them on a one-to-one -one basis sitting across a table. But most people don't do it. And then they complain that they haven't met these people. Or you, you go to a pub in Westminster, you can rub shoulders with, you know, uh, junior secretaries of state. It's just that people don't... It's just like the occult underground itself. People don't realize it's there. And then they complain that they don't see it. And therefore, they come away feeling that they've That's missed out. So it's not even hiding in plain sight. It's just people don't people take don't bother. it seriously in the way, maybe. Yeah, people don't bother and then complain. It's interesting. Not everyone complains. Maybe that's a little harsh. But I, I think people don't see what's at the end of their nose. If more people kept their eyes open, they'd see that there's a lot more going on, even on the surface, than they see. What Cleo was describing us was kind of his experiences in his uh, hometown um, and the occult underground thereof. Uh, would you say what you're what you've been telling us about applies especially to London? I think it depends. I think that London is a world unto itself. It's a very strange city. It's a bit like Washington D.C. Um, unless you live it or know it, it, it's hard to describe how strange it is compared to the rest of the UK. And and the UK, most towns and cities are too small to sustain long-term large groups. A town in the UK is, is on average about 30,000 people. A city, maybe 100,000. There's only a few cities. Larger cities like Birmingham, London, Manchester. They certainly do have their own larger underground communities. And maybe tapping into those is harder because they are more cliquish. The centre, definitely the centre of the occult under, underground in England as compared to the UK, but definitely in England, it is London. And it is, yeah, I, I guess you're right. It is different from the rest of the UK. All right. Has it always been like that, you'd think? 
Uh, no. From what I know, one of the, the two main cities for the occult underground originally were Norwich and Birmingham. With what and Birmingham? Norwich. What was going on in those two cities? Norwich is the the county capital of Norfolk, which is on the east side of England. Um, it was the second city of England before the Industrial Revolution, and it has a long history of alchemy, um, necromancy, and it was an industrial. It, it used to make shoes... Um, leather works um, and it remained a very strong industrial position up until the industrial revolution because it was too far away from coal and that created as well in Norwich after the industrial revolution happened um, mechanomancers um, there is an interesting clockwork society that still exists um, it's called the house of the house of wheels I wouldn't recommend meeting them. They, they have some very odd ideas. Is that supposed to discourage us? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say what you should do. But as I say, necromancy and clockworks, in my, my account, don't mix. Ooh, Would you right. say that an area like Norwich, as you said, it was a, like a manufacturing industrial area before the Industrial Revolution, would it mean that like the occult underground there might be influenced by like even older ideas like like guilds for example that sort of way of doing things um yes um definitely the yeah. guild idea continues um in the uk i know that there are still occult guilds in manchester uh there was at least one of shipbuilders in liverpool but since the docks closed down there and they don't make ships anymore i believe that has left it went to korea you could even say that of mechanomancers Mechanomancers do maybe operate in more like a guild-like fashion because I mean, was occultists in about... general tend to be pretty set in their ways. But I'm thinking more of the terms of like m making a mechanomantic device is a very different process than making a piece of industrial machinery. It's much more like about individual craftsmanship and sharing secrets. And so that might be a thing. Like why mechanomancy was a thing in the industrial era was that the paradox of it was it was um, trying to keep up with the technological changes but the only way to keep up is with like just straight up magic yeah trying to mass produce individualism in the paradox of that yeah something something in there yeah there's definitely okay so you um, mentioned Norwich uh, what about Bur uh, Birmingham uh, Birmingham is is one of the big industrial uh, cities or at least it was up until um, industrialization in the UK effectively ended um, in sort of the 70s, early 80s, um, when it became too expensive. And uh, Thatcher government basically stopped subsidizing manufacture. Birmingham has long been the second city of England since the Industrial Revolution. It's got lots of mines, it had lots of coal, it, um, it built things. Um, but it's also in an area of... Uh, very large traditional. Have you uh, seen the TV show Peaky Blinders? I have not. I think Torrance has. Only in the form of clips on YouTube. <laughs> I know the general idea. Yeah, so um, it's uh, it's set in the 1920s. It's about a criminal gang in Birmingham in the 1920s, and it it sort of juxtaposes. It goes through history. And it, it, it's uh, it's fictionalized, but a lot of it is real. But um, these sort of huge choking black coal uh, factories, uh, burning foundries, canals, everything's covered in soot. Um, and yet at the same time outside, the area around Birmingham is called the Black Country, literally because the soil is black. And there's, there's questions of whether this is because of the coal that was underneath it or the soot that fell on top of it. 
And, um, and yet, at the same time, this creates a very strong agricultural area. You have lots of Romani gypsies. You have uh, various peripheral societies existing, farmers, all working around this huge industrial complex. In, in many ways, Birmingham became the forefront of the war between Agromancy and, and Urbanomancy in the, the late Victorian era, right the way through till about the 1920s and 30s. Was agromancy and abanomancy the way it manifested in that time period significantly different to how it exists today? I, to be honest, they're, they're very secretive. I know that uh, abanomancy was more about uh, it, it was it was more similar to today. I, I am under the impression that agromancy did not require um, ritual sacrifice originally. That that has become more normative in the last fifty years or so. I mean, in a fucked up way, it makes sense, especially with um, the U.S. influencing the occult underground the way it does, considering how uh, common suicide is among farmers in the United States. I'm not sure if that's the case in other parts of the world, but... It just might be, also might be a um, sort of modern reinterpretation, like a grimdark reinterpretation of old magic that becomes the way it is done. You know, oh, it, it must be done with sacrifice. Yeah, probably a bit of both. Bones and blood in the soil, of course, help growing. So I can understand the, the ritual significance of it. But um, it could just be that the old the old speakers of the way, they didn't want to admit to killing their children. So I, I could not confirm or deny. So I guess going back to the broad um, overview of the uh, Honest Underground's history... Um, you're mentioning uh, Tony Blair, War on Terror, all that good stuff, and kind of how that was changing the occult underground and splitting it to a certain degree. The older wave of the uh, the the honest underground, they were more in tune with the idea that they should side with other occultists internationally, and paradoxically, by looking towards America, they also looked they they looked away from empire. There was a large shift away from the traditional ideas of British cultural history. Let's put it like that. And that continued up until about, yeah, 2014, 20, well, 2008, there was a, a massive economic crash in the UK and across the world. It started in the US and it hit the UK. That didn't actually impact upon the occult underground immediately. It would be another eight years or so before it, it really was felt. What what has happened is, is that from about... 2016 onwards those people who were born in the period say 2000 millennials they, 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 what would you call them gen, gen z zoomers millennials what, what? gen z yeah okay yeah so they grew up with a very different interpretation there was austerity in the uk um in 2016 there was brexit so they're teenagers there's massive changes in the education system in the uk and a new magical paradigm and um, lots of these young adepts are now very, very tightly entwined with the American ideology of magic, which is very good from the perspective of, um, I, I believe you call it the handbook, the guidebook. The war game. The war game. Oh, okay. Yeah, the war okay, game. Yeah. Um, so, so many of these occultists in the UK now emulate or at least can utilize or follow the same ideas as uh, those across the pond but it has put a lot of the older dukes as we call them out of pocket 
particularly since Brexit, a lot of the younger adepts looking towards America, whereas at the same time since Brexit, a lot of the older adepts or uh, uh, dukes are now looking back towards uh, the Commonwealth. Like what parts of the Commonwealth? Good old Australia or other parts as well? I, I don't know a huge amount about Canada, the... Uh, New Zealand? Actually, the, the, the biggest areas perhaps of the Commonwealth that they're looking towards is Southeast Asia. I want to see who's still in the Commonwealth. Singapore, Malaysia, um, Hong Kong. Um, oh, Australia and New Zealand, not Surely so much. They're, they're too far away. But there's still lots of Brits who come down. Like, British are the, our number one uh, illegal immigrants. Um, and they get away with it. I thought it was New Zealanders, but I guess there's too few of them. It's we have fairly open borders with New Zealand. Okay. Yeah, so it's easy for Australians to move and live and work in New but, Zealand um, and vice versa. I, what's interesting, I would say, is that most of those are the, the old ten pound palms who used to go to Australia, um, who left, and and you still see this sort of um, I want to escape from the UK. I want to go to Australia. They have no intention of coming back, and so. I wouldn't say they're part of the Commonwealth colonial mentality that existed. In the past, there were two types of people who went to the, the, the Commonwealth, the Empire. There were, there were sojourners and there were settlers. And the majority were sojourners. You went out for four or five years, you made your money, and you went back to England. Whereas settlers were there forever. And settlers stopped being English because they, st they may still call themselves English. They may still call themselves British. They may still believe that they are Englishmen at heart. But the homeland no longer recognizes them as such. Hmm, that's interesting. Regarding sort of the converse of that, um, mm -hmm. how has uh, Britain's increasing uh, immigrant population, Indian, Jamaican, other parts of the Commonwealth and former parts of the Commonwealth, influenced the Akal Underground? With your, with, with your different types of magic, anybody who can get it into their head the contradiction of existence can become an adept. Anybody who fulfills certain aspects can become an avatar. Um, ritual magic, of course, being thaumaturgy, being different from uh, both of those. I do know that there have been, or at least there were, and I think it's coming back, that there's always been immigration to the UK. There's always been uh, large numbers of people who came from across, but not just from the Empire, but elsewhere, like the United States and other places. Um, for instance, in the UK, um, before World War II, um, there were a huge number of African-Americans who were fleeing uh, the United States, who came to the UK and also to France and other parts of Europe. And they brought with them different aspects of their culture. To say that there is a huge amount of occult... They, they, don't, they play a large role in the occult under, underground within, within that group. But I wouldn't say oh, they're separate anymore. Yeah, they're they're not separated in in how they carry out their their day to day life of magic or anything else. They've been anglified. I would say they've been anglicized, but within the underground itself, I wouldn't even say the underground itself is anglicized. There are certain elements that are that are traditionally English, but as we see, there's now a dichotomy, a split between the the forward looking world group, the younger group, who are looking towards America and taking on those aspects. Is, is there like a Nigerian occult underground in the UK? No. Is there a, a, a wider group of people who, who embody certain aspects of it? Probably yes. There's definitely a Nigerian occult mainstream in the UK. Yes. Um, that's, that's a lot more complicated. And there, <laughs> there have been a number of 
situations with that where it's bubbled up to the surface. But um, yeah, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna skip this topic because I don't really know how I can how I can get into it without sounding problematic. <laughs> what about um, our post ninety seven uh, Hong Kong? Ooh. The underground there. Did any of them go to the UK? Was there a sort of like a Hong Kong occult underground of sorts that decamped back to the UK after 97? Or did they just remain in place for the most part? When it comes to um, Hong Kong and, and those sort of areas, there'd already been groups of people who'd gone in the 1980s. And um, I can't remember his name, but there was definitely a, a member of the Sleepers who was uh, an ex-policeman who was involved in that. And I haven't seen him for a number of years, but I know he's apparently still around. But when it came to the post-97, especially with the situation going on now, I, I think that there's going to be more and more of this sort of cross-pollination, and they're going to bring in new, new elements to it. I would not know what those would be just yet. But I, I think it'd be the same way that we were talking about the uh, the rest of the immigrant populations coming into the UK. Over time, they start off as separate, and then they become subsumed into it, until there is no, um, there's really no difference between them. Okay, so maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but what you're describing about this sort of new wave of the honest underground, of these um, more disenfranchised and disillusioned um, adepts, seems less Americanized and more just globalized while looking to America as an example of how that sort of thing is done. I think that's probably a good way of describing it. I suppose the question becomes, is America the world? There are some who would probably argue that. I think a lot of people in the UK do see America as the, um, as the world. Uh, not, not for good, not for bad, maybe for worse. The idea of America as a, uh, a driving force for so many things, even though they may not like America, I don't think it's easy to um, to argue that it's not um, a major part of that. And, and it's sort of like the thing of, um, especially I noticed this in Australia too, um, with sort of like a reflexive sort of anti-Americanism, and I always see it as there's something to it there's like a sense of inferiority complex going on behind it i feel we get that in america even though honestly like in america i see that a lot of sentiment targeted towards california specifically i wouldn't say it's jealousy but there is particularly for um, the uk in the among older people there was a general sense that america you know what did america want to do did it want to be the world policeman it, it can't sit there and say we're not an imperial power while not being the world policeman. And this was a feeling that definitely was in the 1950s through to the 1970s. And then in the 80s, Thatcher and, and America sort of melded together the, the, the great, um, what would you call it, uh, sort of brotherhood. And maybe, maybe that will continue. Maybe it will break apart. I personally believe that the in, the, in my lifetime, the, the honest underground as an English institution will disappear that it will be subsumed into a a proto-American ideology. Interesting. So the occult underground is just going to become more and more global. Has, has Brexit accelerated this at all? Was there any sort of cross-pollination during uh, Britain's period in the European Union where between whatever's happening on the continent and what's happening in the UK, or was it always quite separated? 
without getting into the politics, the mainstream politics of Brexit, uh, talking specifically about the occult, the occult underworld that I know of, of the Brexit, um, there has always been a a war raging between the the English cultists and the European, and I use European in quote marks. Um, in the past, for instance, to give an example about um, the euro, uh, the UK never accepted the euro as a currency, and there was a lot of talk that this was because if you accepted the euro, it would actually damage Plutomancy, and that would cripple not only the UK economy, but it would destroy all the Plutomancers who were active in the city of London. That does make sense, in a way. You, you'll see it also with... Uh, the, the cryptomancers, um, the English, and the, and the Germans. Yeah. How about the decimalization of the currency? Didn't that have an effect on plutomancers? Technically, decimalization had been implemented in the 1880s as an official government policy. So, um, although money continued to be done as a um, a duodecimal, I think it's a duodecimal system of twelves and twenty fours. Um, from what I gather, economically, it wasn't as big of a hit simply because they converted it to US dollars beforehand. Um, the difference was the euro had been invented, was an invented currency for, uh, post the period when the US dollar had been invented. But don't quote me on that. That's a little complicated. That's a little outside of my area. Oh, fair enough. But I do know the uh, the currency argument, definitely. Um, Plutomancy, since Brexit, um, Plutomancy has been going at a steady clip but there have been some problems with, for instance, uh, agromancers, uh, even some urbanomancers have had problems because uh, twin cities and things have been removed. Uh, some of them were able to go between uh, Europe and uh, the UK area they lived in because the cities were twin. I, I just imagine this agromancer who has like a, a holiday home in the south of France that he can no longer charge at anymore. And he's very angry. That and he killed his son and buried him there. And now he, he can't even get over there to sort out. Yeah, it's a sad day for uh, certain types of magicians. Um, it's definitely been good for those um, certain other aspects of it. I guess reaching beyond just England, you speculate that the future will have the honest underground sort of disappearing and being subsumed into a broader largely Americanized occult underground. Do you think that's probably going to be what happens pretty much everywhere else? Or is this more of a function of um, the U.S.'s cultural influence over England in particular? It may not happen in, in Europe proper. If I had to pick places where it would occur, I would imagine it would probably be Canada, the U.K., maybe Ireland. Um, definitely Australia. My understanding is that the Canadian occult underground is pretty much contiguous with the U.S. occult underground. Yeah. Now, and I, I, we we have some friends that have very strong opinions otherwise, but everything I've seen is been there's a they they pretty much operate in the same circles. It's interesting to me that it seems almost like uh, the situation in the occult underground might lag a bit behind like the geopolitical situation. Um, in the same way that geopolitics lags behind economics. Like, for example, after World War II, economically the US was very dominant, but perhaps magically not so much. Um, and now, geopolitically, you could say that the US is in decline relative to what it used to be, but maybe this is the time when 
maybe it's a sort of last gasp, last, not last, but um, like a late empire sort of, um, what's the word for it, late capitalism sort of gasp of uh, Americanization of occult undergrounds around the world. Makes sense, because, you know, I kind of think of it as, like, economics tends to influence heavily, influence geopolitics, and both those things tend to influence culture after a while, and then culture... Uh, with time is going to be influencing magic pretty heavily, so... Culture is always slower than uh, politics, yeah. And magic's even slower than that. <laughs> yes. Damn, that was a hell of a primer, Strange. <laughs> Thank you. And that's what two pints will get us. Uh, how about four? <laughs> well, you ask the questions and I'll tell you no lies. Alright, alright. Uh, how about the... Um, if we try to talk about, like... The declining honest underground in the face of an Americanized uh, brave new underground. Um, what do you see as like the major like differences between like I know that in the UK they don't like uh, one thing that's always brought up in arguments between Americans and Brits that I I follow vicariously on the internet is um, guns. Now there's so many guns in the US and there's none in the in the UK. Has that had an effect? Uh, I think it's a bit of a myth to say that there are no guns in the UK. At least in the countryside, you're going to find a heck of a lot of guns. They're not the same type of guns. You're more likely to find shotguns, bolt-action rifles. In the in the criminal organisations, pistols are definitely the, the favourite weapon. But yeah, the, the slow and progressive movement away from guns has been a, a cause of... a case of contention... Even in the UK. Starts around about 1901, continues into 1920 when you start having to have licenses. 1968 gets rid of a lot of the heavier weapons. You're allowed to have rifles, you're allowed to have shotguns, you can still have pistols. There was a bit of a boost in the 40s and 50s after World War II, correct? Uh, Yep, yep. Although there was um, a deal that was cut between the police and uh, many of the major criminal gangs in London in which the UK, uh, the Metropolitan Police, would turn a blind eye to the activities of gangs. In exchange, all these weapons were loaded with the trucks and then apparently pushed off piers into the sea. Holy shit. I feel like some similar things happened in um, certain periods in Japan between authorities and the US yeah. in terms of, like, you can get away with a lot as long as you don't use a gun yeah. or don't use a weapon. I mean, historically, one of the main reasons that the UK police were unarmed was a deliberate um, literally when the police force in the UK was, was created it was deliberately unarmed people don't like it but it's true that one of the ideas was that criminals would shoot and kill policemen and the public outrage would actually shame the, the criminals into stop shooting policemen because the police were unarmed and therefore both sides would actually de-escalate the amount of violence used strategic martyrdom classic yeah so uh, basically between 1985 and 1997, there were two or three large mass shootings in the UK. In reality, they're, 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 I wouldn't like to get into too much conspiratorial um, theories about that. Don't let us stop you. Let's just say in the UK that um, reports on these large mass shootings are very, very thin in paperwork. And they, they, rarely, they le- often leave more questions than answers on why these things occurred unlike in the US where there's very in-depth um, investigation into them and so in, in 1997 there was a mass shooting at a school called Dunblane and a number of children were killed the, the perpetrator killed himself 
and the UK government implemented sweeping laws on gun control, particularly on pistols, which we used in the. And there's there's some, not not necessarily specifically about uh, these mass shootings, but you see a trajectory of them, the guns being removed. And this, as I said, this goes all the way back to about 1890. Within the occult underground, there is a conspiracy theory itself that this was an attempt by the House of Jack. And um, I'm sure you know Jack the Ripper, famous for his use of knives in London at that period. The idea was that it wasn't just one man, um, that there were ritual elements to these killings, and that this society continues into the uh, water today. Um, There's there's also some arguments that uh, it was actually carried out by the United States to force Britain's superior gun makers to move to the U.S., basically to steal away the UK's uh, firearm manufacturers. Whether that's true, I don't know. Well, a lot of those early, the big famous guns in certain areas, like the Gatling gun was British originally, wasn't well, it? Well, um, yeah, the, the company who made it, um, the Gatling gun, but he was American, and he, impl- he tried to introduce it to the US, and they refused to buy it. So that's why he moved to the UK and became a UK citizen. How does this influence fulminaturgy? Because kind of what you describe with... Um, the use of guns and where they are in the modern UK is very different from the sort of gun symbology that fulminaturgy tends to rely on, which is very American. The gun as sort of the dividing line between civilization and chaos, where in this case it's, you know, hunting and organized crime, neither of which are exactly potent symbols of civilization. There is one group that I do know in the UK who um, are quite beast, and they specifically come from uh, George, George Orwell's line about um, the, the every true socialist has a rifle above the mantelpiece. Yeah, the great symbol of the working class is the rifle yes. on the mantelpiece. And uh, this group, oddly enough, starts to appear in the 1980s, at the same time that you have the minor strikes in the UK, police are going in, breaking up... Um, um, strikes, protests, and uh, the Thatcher government is implementing hard crackdowns on left-wing and union uh, unionization. And that's when you start seeing the, the Orwellians, as they're called, or nicknamed anyway, they don't call themselves that. They have an incredibly yeah, long socialist there. <laughs> so the, the Orwellians come in, and um, oddly enough, 1984, same year that the, uh, the strikes come in, start buying up lots of guns and start upholding this idea of, of socialist uh, socialist firearm worship, effectively. Makes sense in a way, like, you know, socialism or barbarism, right? Your words, not mine. Well, no, like, I mean, as far as, like, the full miniturgy uh, symbology, right? Oh, uh, yeah. With the gun being the dividing line between society and, and barbarism, if the only alternative to barbarism is socialism... Yeah. There you and, go. And- Paradoxically, it also links with the idea of individualism, the rugged individualism of the socialists standing up against, you know, the tyranny of the state. And paradoxically, that sort of individualism is also an element of the 1980s occultism that entered the world at that point, in the UK at least. I do like the the implied campaign frame of um, uh, uh, socialists with illegal firearms versus Jack the Ripper stockbrokers. 
uh, Thatcherite Jack the Ripper um, aficionados in the 1980s well, is pretty great. Jack Jack the Ripper did operate around the you know periphery of the city. It's uh, it's understandable, and and uh, yeah, financially, yeah, it, it makes sense. I, I wouldn't like to say it's true, but it'd be interesting if the reason that guns started to be banned in the UK in the 1980s at least uh, was due to the Orwellians. Again, it's a theory. I, I wouldn't like to say it's true. And it's interesting to me. Um, because Frank just mentioned that it was bad optics to be called Orwellians. And it's interesting that um, the word Orwellian has been sort of pushed towards like describing his fiction as opposed to his like political writings. Um, so you can't say, I'm, a, I'm an Orwellian without sounding, I don't know, weird. Or, no, it, it doesn't sound quite right. But you could be an Orwellian in the same way that you could be like a, um, a Marxist or a... Yeah, whatever. like a sort of... Syndi- broad syndicalist. George Orwell's definition for himself was Tory anarchist. Tory anarchist. <laughs> Jesus, I would not trust anyone that calls themselves that in the modern day. Oh, there, there, there's a few. There's still a few people who do oh, I'm call sure. themselves Tory anarchists. I'm sure. um, but the idea of the Tory anarchist is a traditional conservative who believes in um, traditional traditional um, cultural norms but that they should also be stood up against where they impinge upon normative. So, for instance, in the UK, um, the idea that um, this is a big one uh, and, it, and it's impacted quite recently, um, the idea that censorship on the internet, that you should have to give your credit card, that you have to give your identity before you can look at pornography, or that you have to have your name for every forum you go to. This has been put forward in the UK. And a Tory, there are a number of Tory anarchists who are like, no, that's way too far. They are Tories because they believe in um, centre-right politics, but they're also libertarian in that sense. Not to, I suppose libertarian might be the, the American term for it. Yeah, sort of a proto-libertarianism. All right. But, but libertarianism in the UK is, is a lot more, um, uh, what would you call them in the US? Um, the people who believe that they the government doesn't work, that, that they... The, Admiralty courts and things. Yeah, I mean, libertarians tend to be pretty just broadly anti-government, um, making it as small as possible. Sovereign state. Oh, soft sits. Yeah, soft sits, okay. that's it. Yeah, yeah so... Like, um, militia, militia types. So the UK um, has its own version of that, who are called um, freemen of the land. All right, but it seems to, sounds like it's more coached in um, a sort of uh, center-right uh, cultural sentiment, because... What you hear from libertarians in America all the time is the idea, I'm a socially liberal, but economically conservative. That's, that's the refrain that you hear frequently. So, and it seems like um, the libertarian types you might have in the UK, there's less of that sentiment. I think it's possible. I think it, that the UK is definitely, although it's becoming more Americanized in its um, hardline factionalism, this didn't exist this, this sort of existed in the 1980s, then it disappeared throughout the 90s, and it came back very briefly at the beginning of the Iraq War, 2001 to 2003. By the time it had vanished, there was like huge economic stagnation in the UK, and people had bigger things to worry about than um, civil liberties and, and their, their personal opinion on, uh, on economic theory. Everyone had to uh, tighten their belts. I just had this terrible idea, which because I was reminded of some documentary I was watching recently. I was just thinking what you were saying about how they want to bring in the sort of de-anonymization of the internet and how having names listed and all this sort of thing. Um, and it's similar to what China does, and what some countries like South Korea have adopted, 
um, the real name system um, to limit to minimize, you know, um, trolling and also like fucked up behavior on the internet, like criminal behavior, exploitation and things like that. And there are arguments on one side or the other um, for the benefits and um, the problems of that because there, it, it does hit into some like sort of people are used to like the internet as being like a sort of a anonymized space to an extent. But some people aren't used to that, especially younger people. They're more into the uh, the Garden World version of it. And I'm just imagining this Tory, who's not a Tory anarchist, but a Tory who's really pushing for like the de-anonymization of the internet, like a real a real name system. Um, and he's saying a lot of things about like they have to do this because of the problem of pedophiles on the internet and the abuse of um, and like human trafficking and all that on the internet. But his secret, um, his secret what is it motivation behind that isn't because he dislikes all those things but because he thinks the pause shouldn't have them unless you're rich you shouldn't be trafficking women i all right and that would be the right. twist yeah i i wouldn't say that's even untrue i mean if you think of uh, not, not not that they're trafficking women but of course cocaine in the uk was perfectly fine i mean uh, sure. everyone injected cocaine and, and smoked opium yeah the sentiment that um the rich and powerful are responsible enough to handle a certain amount of vice i was thinking more of like um oh you got your jimmy savile and other big people who've been accused of, uh, what's his name um um, Rolf Harris. Oh, Rolf well, Harris, in the amount yes, that uh, the Thatcherite government went out of their way to try to bury the accusations against Jimmy Saffle. Yes, and the other guy, what's his name? The prince. Which prince? Oh, prince. That's right. Like the people like that uh, because they can use power and they can use secrecy and they can use money to get away with whatever the hell they want—horrible, heinous acts. And there's a lot of that going on on the internet. Um, as well, because lots of things have been democratized. Price of civilization. The Aztecs sacrificed virgins to the gods to ensure their harvest came in, to ensure their rivers didn't run dry and their cities didn't riot, and yeah, we do the same thing, of course. Have I taken us into a too dark a direction? This is pretty dark stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I guess obliquely speaking of drugs, um... Uh, we've gone into a lot of, um, other adepts. Actually, no, like, so we, we've kind of been getting into what different classes can get away with in the UK. You tend to disagree that, um, class has a strong influence on the occult underground in the UK. But it is, um, I mean, like, the speaking from an outside perspective, um, the first thing I think of when I think of, um, Honestly, UK culture is a class stratification, and you're saying that's not necessarily the case, that's a stereotype, but it does mean that sort of image is very powerful. Those sorts of concepts are very powerful in regards to the United Kingdom, and has my, my question is, has that influenced your guys's? Uh, occult underground at all? Definitely. I think it influenced it a hell of a lot more in the past. There's a there's a famous story, and I can't remember which, which lady it was or whatever, but she was being interviewed by the BBC in like 1950. Um, 1960, yeah, 1960-ish. And she was like a Viscountess or something. And she reported, they, they said, what has changed between now and say 30 years ago with the class system? And her reply was the fact that I'm talking to you. <laughs> and sure. prior to World War Two, uh, well, prior to World War One, 
the class system began to break down in because of World War One, simply because you you had um, officers who were working class men because they'd been promoted from the, the front lines. You had gentlemen soldiers who were privates, and they were both serving on the firing line. And then by the 1920s, it was breaking down. By World War Two, it had definitely started breaking down. Yes, definitely there is a class system that is stronger than in the US and maybe and definitely some parts of Europe and it did take longer for it to disappear in the in certain aspects of the occult underground in the UK but that was as I said part of that the growth the boom post-war in which you started seeing these um, predominantly World War II survivors who were coming out and saying I don't fit within the the traditional idea of, of magic in the UK. And so the class system, you know, the, the, you had the, the cowled, um, wearing cloaks, uh, meeting in the basements of pubs um, with their blades and doing sacrifices, druids, etc. Yeah, they, they were definitely part of the upper class for the most part. Um, there is a strong link between the middle and upper classes and occultism in traditional UK parlance. But the guys who became individualist were also members of the middle and upper class. And so they took in people who were from the lower class. There, there was When you survived a war, I think that it changes things a lot. And that did creep in. Um, and by the 1980s, that class system had fallen away to a greater extent than maybe in the US. At least that's my understanding of it. This is interesting because it kind of reminds me of what people say about um, racism in the US um, not breaking down but changing partially due to experience in wars, specifically World War II and uh, more prominently the Vietnam War. I would say that when it comes to racism in the UK, um, class always trumps race. <laughs> for the most part, definitely compared to what I've seen in the United States, which doesn't mean that there is no racism in the UK. It's a, it's a very different beast. Yeah, in the US, um, different sort of racial groups sort of have their own upper classes. Where there's yep. a certain degree, you know, there's a certain degree of um, association between like the white upper class and the black upper class, but they they're definitely sort of their own social networks. You honestly see more. Uh, interracial networking in uh, the lower middle classes and the upper classes, I think. Mm -hmm. I do think even in the U.S., because race is a much bigger cultural force in the U.S. Yeah, especially it's a big cultural force everywhere versus kind of to but, degree everyone else. Honestly, it's not a complete though, because I remember reading this one story years ago. I think it was on Reddit or something uh, about this guy living in Chicago who was constantly getting pulled over for driving while black and he was getting annoyed with it because the cops were just rude and aggressive and suspicious. And he, he discovered a technique where it wouldn't stop him from being pulled over, but if he put on a British accent, they would treat him nicer. <laughs> and they'd suddenly be more polite. Interesting. I was thinking about that as like, because he became an out of context problem, perhaps. And it showed that the whole, that uh, race in America, it's not entirely about race. As well, there's definitely class. He's black British, he's different. Well, there's definitely a class dimension. He's British there. before he's black. In the U.S., there is class dimension. Yeah. Yeah. In the U.S., we tend to kind of associate British accents with being cultured and being posh to a certain degree. Yep. Like, if generally, if you run into someone with a 
British accent in the U.S., at least in my experience, they're pretty much always middle class or above. There's one guy that go that talks about, um, are either of you guys aware of Reginald D. Hunter? No. He's this black dude from, I think he's from Georgia. Yeah, he's from Georgia. He's, he's one of those uh, American comedians that moves to the U.K. and does, like, disproportionately well there. Um, and you get the, the vice versa when you have British people who... British celebrities who moved to the U.S. have become more popular in the U.S. than they are back home. But he has a few... Um, uh, he does a few... Some of his uh, bits are about um, British classism and how it's more advanced <laughs> and more developed. I think there's also a myth um, or an idea. So in the United States, class generally revolves around money. And in the U.K., the higher you are in class, you're the, generally the poorer you are. Yeah, it's more of a question of breeding, I guess. Um, it, it's breeding, it's education. But um, I, I think a lot of people... So, to, to give a small anecdote, I, I grew up in a mixed a mixed area in which I spent time, a lot of time in the countryside, um, where you can walk sort of 45 minutes to an hour and not see another person, but see a lot of sheep. And, and London, where you can't throw a stone without smashing, like, two Starbucks windows and, and knocking over a, a foreigner. Um, so it, it's sort of a dichotomy there. But what was interesting was that the people go, oh, you know, what about the, the local sort of squire, the guy who owns the land in the countryside? And it's like, well, yeah, he wears a tweed jacket. He drives a shitty 1970s uh, Range Rover that's covered in rust and mud. Um, he, he comes down to the pub and he knows all the other farmers by name. And he, uh, he helps... You know, uh, during lambing season, he helps uh, with the lamb, lambs being given birth. Um, the idea that he's outside of society is kind of a, a myth, if that makes sense. Hmm. Makes sense. So there might be less um, division between the elite and the, the common folk than there is in the US, which is more money focused. I, I think there is, a, there is a split. You can definitely have... But what's interesting is that you have old money and new money. And the, the new money ones are definitely more isolated. They come from middle or working class, and they they take their ideals from television. Let's put it like that. Which clubs to go to, where to drink, who to be friends with. Whereas the old money ones, they know they're superior to you. They don't have to put on airs and graces. If you want to know how to swear, you know, every other minute... It's either the working class or the upper class. It's the upper class don't care if they swear in front of you. Well, actually, I read a there was they did a, a linguistic study of um, people in the UK, different classes in the UK, of what they said when they couldn't hear you or um, like misheard what you said. And lower class people would just say what, and um, middle class people would say excuse me or I beg your pardon, and then upper class people would just say what. You, you do don't get very far if you don't get dirt and blood under your nails and it's the middle class who don't like getting dirt and blood under their nails let's put it like that but, but then again maybe it's because the upper classes in the countryside are all agromancers and all the ones in the uh, in the city are all plutomancers I, I don't know obviously obviously or it's the other way around that's that's where the uh, how's the jacks coming from all of that is just uh, uh, agromancy rituals the class system also it, it does exist because you've got this paradoxical system as well of sort of slumming it, this class tourism of um, what's called mockneys, and um, mockney being as in mock cockney. There's this accent in the UK called estuary English, 
you can find it in people like um, Russell Brand, uh, Jamie Oliver, uh, Guy Ritchie, the director. Um, Jamie Oliver's the chef who, if you know, who yeah. went to America and told all the Americans that they shouldn't eat processed food. <laughs> this, uh, this fake fake accent, fake Chan accent, in which you are actually sort of um, private school educated. You maybe went to university. You may have quite a bit of money, and yet you pretend to be one of the working class. It's sort of the opposite of My Fair Lady. It's the opposite of um, Keeping Up Appearances. I'm sure you've seen that show. The Bouquet Residence. Well, Keeping Keeping Up Appearances is is um, is actually about a middle class a, a, a middle class woman pretending to be. It, it, it's a mockery of the middle classes in the UK. Um, yeah, yeah, but. Um, Definitely Persanomancers. Um, I think that the the fake chav, the Mockney class tourism, is definitely an offshoot Persanomancy. This also sounds kind of like walking a certain sort of avatar path. Oh yeah, I'd agree. I was actually kind of thinking about that a bit. So like we we have the sort the, the holy prole as the down to earth yeah. everyman archetype, right? But I was kind of wondering if there's some sort of um, similar Kind of similar archetype that's, I mean, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, your rednecks, your uh, bogans, your chavs, the the sort of, um, rather than the down-to-earth relatable lower class, it's the, oh god, at least I'm not that guy lower class. You th- would you put that as the holy prole? As no, I'd chav? consider that a yeah. very different archetype. Maybe it's sort of like, um, not an outsider, definitely an insider, yeah. but like that sort of... Um, yeah, what is it? Is there a, is there an avatar of the redneck? Uh, you you need a more poetic name than that, I think. But yeah, I could definitely see because like it seems like every culture has that sort of like that stereotype of the insular, uncultured, rural, often heavily inbred sort. I remember in um, uh, John McWhorter's book that I shall not name, there where he talked about the I think it was in this book he talked about the origin of the word cracker. Um, for a white person, and everyone assuming it is comes from the cracking of a whip, but it actually comes from um, I think it's 15th century uh, English slang um, for a boastful lower class person mm. who didn't know his place. Um, I was assuming it came thinking... from a saltine, to be honest. <laughs> like that, that same that same color, extremely bland. That's the bactomology of it. People will bring it up like to explain it, but it's an old term that was used. Um, to crack was to boast um, okay. and and, pull, and talk yourself up, and it was like the um, upper class at the time would dismiss like uh, if they go into a pub and there's some lower class person who doesn't know when to um, be properly properly deferential, he'd be called a cracker. Have you heard of a book called Albion's Seed? Yes. Yes, I yeah, have. Not. It's um, it's a book that basically argues that. Um, the United States is founded on four types of British people. Hmm. The East Anglia, the, the East of England, the East Anglian region, um, founded Massachusetts, and you find cultural aspects of it in New England. Uh, south of England, uh, Cavaliers, Pirates, founded Virginia. Uh, the North Midlands founded the Delaware area, Quakers and Industrialites. And the borderlands, like Ohio and all that sort of area, is the um, borderlands all the way down to sort of Texas um, came from the back country of England, so the Scotch Irish, the Border English, 
and, and, and you find their linguistic patterns. And so East Anglia, as I said, Norfolk was the second city of England, industrial, Puritan, um, educated, and their linguistic patterns actually map onto Massachusetts among the old breed of sort of um, educated Harvard folk. That's very interesting. I've, I've heard different, various um, interpretations of the nations of the US, but that's a, yeah, that makes sense in a way, especially considering the linguistic influence of different parts of the UK onto different regional accents of the US. That fails to bring up that there are parts of the US, broad swaths of it, that have a very heavy German influence as well. This is going back to um, the 1670s, 1700s. Definitely you start seeing different groups, you know, Polish, German, um, but it's just talking about the cultural aspects that build The up. foundations of the culture. The foundation, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's 100% accurate either, but it's an interesting book, and it does map, it does show some interesting similarities. If you, if you want to understand how America does map to certain areas of the UK, it's a good read for that. Uh, Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher. Because I do know, um, what is it, especially with New England, it's, um, surely that also would have continued over time due, due to the, the, the fact that it was a heavily trading with the British Isles for many like the whole time mm-hmm. yeah because I've, I've heard that the uh, non-roticity of some New England accents might be related to the uh, more frequent contact with the, the UK well East Anglia is, is non-rotic for the most part and, and that's another thing I think uh, compared to the US the UK linguistics you've got 800 800 odd accents in the UK although they're disappearing again because of America <laughs> the influence of television there's um the, the, the influence of America on the UK cannot be understated. How that will change since Brexit? Is the UK going to keep start looking back towards America? Or is it going to start looking towards the Commonwealth? And that, as I said, is being seen within the, the, the underworld, the underground. Fuck, this has been a lot. Very informative. What are some things, if people, if we're going to talk about the war game for a minute, um, what are some cultural touchstones? Because everyone's like watched some some British media in their time, but it covers a lot of different things. Um, and to sort of have a tone for playing the war game, of playing quote-unquote unknown armies, um, what I was thinking of in terms of what would be a good sort of tone for a British game might be something like um, that evokes the sort of weirdness, dark, surreal, but slightly comic aspect of TV shows like The League of Gentlemen. Sure. Um, what are some other examples? Um, even just like... Um, or the original British The Office, how awkward it was. Even that is kind of surreal compared to the American version. Like, would that, like, would shows... Yeah, there is more of a sort of undercurrent, uh... I don't even say undercurrent, um... Just more of a tradition of, like, a British mundane weirdness. Uh, first thing that comes to mind would be The Prisoner. There's, there's a, a term, and I can't remember who, who coined it, but it was called wainscoting fantasy. Um, the idea that it's it's not secret, it's just behind the wainscoting in a big house. Um, and the, the perfect example of that historically is a book called The Borrowers, and I can't remember who wrote it, but it's about little people who live in, in the house and steal things. Uh, but um, when it comes to an English cultural touchstone or cultural touchstones for that sort of topic, in some ways it's bleaker than the American one. I feel like lots of English fantasy or science fiction or, or, or horror, the opportunity for change is actually far less than a, um, American topics like this 
there's generally a feeling that our heroes will do something about it and they will succeed. Which in the UK, yes, they'll succeed, but does it really do anything? And how many of the Doctor's companions will die along the way? Yeah, um, you, you save the day, but it's just another day. It's um, there, There's a very strong sort of... There's something in the British psyche that loves the idea of losing or coming second place, but sweeping in for sort of... Big, World War II for the UK is a series of defeats with, with sweeping in in penalty time just to score that one extra goal. We lost all the way through right to the end. And then we just happen to pip it at the post. Um, it's why films like Dunkirk, which is literally just about running away from the Germans, is very, very popular. And, and there's something about that in, in, the, in the English psyche, about coming in last minute or coming in second. Um, when it comes to, to proper touchstones, things like um, obvious ones. Alan Moore, um, his From Hell. It, it's an area of occultism that is, I would say, uniquely English. Uh, psychogeography. The idea of the city um, holding aspects of ghosts, spirits, psychology um, built up on that. And, and it does have a lot of the, the ideas of contradiction. It's definitely before 1945, so it's old magic. But it, it does have a lot of the feeling of uh, bleak Englishness to it. Um, Similarly for comics, on a completely different take on that, is Kieran Gillen's phonogram, which is, um, I mean, it uses terms that unknown armies would recognize, like phonomancer, and it's uh, about a guy who is a pop music occultist, who uses pop music for magic, popmancer, and it ties in with this idea of British invasion, the Beatles, etc., Oasis, literal soft power magic um, being able to influence people to change um, society through musical elements and um, it, it's, a, it's a good read it's, uh, it's worth picking up if you're interested in a, a slightly trippier more upbeat but still quite dangerous version of British magic as far as comics go the one that sort of immediately comes to mind for me and this is very obvious, but I also know, happen to know that this particular series was a heavy influence on the writing of the war game by Times and Stolze would be Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. Definitely. Um, that's a very good... I, I think, again, it's, it's one that taps into a more... It, it's a it's very, very fictionalized... And very yeah, it's fictionalized, a very 90s... Yeah. It, or late 80s, yeah. It, it's very much a scream of the Thatcherite uh, idea of the 80s. I mean, I'd, I'd argue Morrison is still doing that scream long past the point where it's maybe resonant. Yeah. Neil Gaiman did Neverwhere, um, yeah. which is about an, an upside-down London that exists underneath. It's, it's more fantasy than it is Unknown Armies, but there are elements of it, and the same with Rivers of London which also has, um, it's maybe a little bit too twee <laughs> in some ways for an Unknown Armies campaign in the UK. I've read the first book of Rivers in London and I, I enjoyed it. It is a bit too twee, but there are bits you can steal from it. That are cool. I, I think, again, it has a certain darkness to it that uh, juxtaposes with it. But yes, the idea of like um, literal, literal gods of the Thames and literal gods of the rivers of London does not fit within the milieu of 
unknown armies. It's it's sort of like uh, the laundry versus Delta Green in a way. Yes, but it's still worth reading just for a look at the UK, which I think embodies aspects of. Uh, um, you've mentioned uh, League of Gentlemen, which is aged. Um, I remember when it came out. I watched it religiously when it came out, and I could recognize. Okay, what is the huge... League of Gentlemen? I've heard League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but not League of Gentlemen. It's a television series which came out in the early 2000s in the UK, and it's set in a fictional Yorkshire town, small town. And it's basically a series of sketches with recurring characters. So you have, um, like, the taxi driver, who is a a male to female uh, undergoing transition. There's a a vicar who hates all their parishioners. There's a mayor who can't stop swearing endlessly. And these surreal, very, very dark sketches in which these characters interact. And over the course of the series, this storyline builds up um, relating to... In the first season, it's about a new road that's being built through the town and people protesting about it and how they're going to do it. But it's, it's very, very politically incorrect, which I know is, is a cliche term these days, but it, it was deliberately designed as a TV show that would make you squirm and make you feel very uncomfortable at, it, at its comedy. I think there is like a, a through line, like the sort of um, the occult mainstream version of that might be something like Little Britain, which is also like that, but in a more, what's the word for it? More accessible? Accessible, yeah, that might yes. be the word. Yes, Little Britain definitely you'd have a sketch that would go on for 10 minutes and the punchline would be about a dead baby or something it would be desperately bleak um but it was also very relatable in that the characters in it if you lived in the uk in a town you could recognize everybody uh, and there were very few shows that, that kind of managed to do that so that's that's definitely a if you can stomach it it's worth watching but it is aged immeasurably in the last 20 years or so. <laughs> yes, it has. What about um, this work of Chris Morris? I'm thinking of, uh, I used to watch Jam, Yep. Uh, which was like this like really dark um, comedy, <laughs> question mark sketches. And, and, um, and then he did um, Brass Eye as well. Brass Eye is actually really good for, I think, other armies. Um, this, um, the same with uh, maybe the, the, the day-to-day which is a, a prequel to Brass Eye. It's a news, fake news channel as well. Um, Brass Eye definitely embodies many of the sort of surreal aspects of the UK. Jam? I think Jam may be, may be a little too far. <laughs> I was always stoned when I watched it, but I, I remember it being very fucked up. Yes. And, yeah. um, it made me... It, it, it has a feeling it's hard to describe but i feel it's relevant yeah well the same with four lions which although not specifically attached to unknown armies but um it has that sort of um a peek into the underbelly he he likes looking at uh, people who you don't normally look at and treating them with with four lions feels like like a cabal of it (laughs) does instead of doing doing islamic terrorism i mean like you, I could easily see pretty much all the events ha- of Four Lions happening in a UA campaign in a slightly tweaked context. Yeah, so I could very easily see a cabal that's just a straight-up terrorist group for reasons yeah. of shaping the status sphere, of course. A TV series that embodies that sort of cabal friends aspect is a TV show for Spaced with Simon Pegg. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the one that... Um, 
Mark Frost did before. Um, wait, not yeah. Uh, God, what's the guy's name? Um, the director. Fuck. Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. Space is what he did before. Um, before he did movies. So, Spaced is the UK version of Friends, in that they take lots of drugs, and it's very pop culture driven. Um, the DVD famously when, had... Where did the Friends yeah, I don't take remember any episodes about <laughs> any of the cast of Friends taking drugs. No, that, 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 that's my point. It's the UK version of Friends okay. in which lots of drugs are taken. Simon Pegg wants to uh, draw comics for 2000 AD. The DVD version deliberately had a homageometer, which counted in the bottom corner how many homages or references to films or TV or comics were in an episode, and it regularly get up to like 200 in a 30-minute episode. You know, it, it's, it was very um, accessible, maybe for those who grew up in the 90s more so, but there's a nostalgia, there's a lot of like jokes about Star Wars and things that people would relate to today, yeah. but it, it does... It does tap into a lot of what I'd consider that multi multicultural multicultural maybe not multicultural but multi multi class uh, middle class upper class. The characters are slumming it. They are all sort of university educated, trying to be writers and artists, and they're not very good at it. All their friends are like uh, taxi drivers and taking drugs, and it does show that sort of um, mixed student, post-student lifestyle that existed in the UK in the early 2000s to maybe the late 2000s. That pop culture awareness was sort of a lot more, I guess, exclusive? Yeah, that's not the right word, but there was like more of a sort of um, weird sense of status associated with it. Of like, uh, I'm informed, I've spent a lot of time becoming informed on this broad array of culture. Whereas now, like, everyone has fucking Google. It's not hard to find that stuff. <laughs> it's not hard to get that joke if you don't get it. I guess going back to books a bit and touching on stuff like Rivers of London. I've never read it myself, but I've had China Meville's Kraken. Recommended to me a lot of times as good on an army's fodder. I've read it a long time ago. It's pretty good. Would you say it's a solid uh, thing to read as far as unknown armies in London goes? Yes, but again, it's it's not more twi. It's 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 more. There are bits you can steal. Definitely, you get bits you can steal. But it's too, I guess, um, self-consciously in the weird tradition. I guess maybe. Maybe that's it. Problem with recommending like British stuff that's like weird stuff is, is there's quite a lot. Yes, yeah, <laughs> there's quite a lot. People who want to play in a UK-focused campaign shouldn't really try too hard to, in my opinion, emulate the UK. I mean, otherwise it does become self-parody. There's a lot of that. There have been some interesting material. There's been some interesting material in UA for. Um, the occult underground in the UK. At some point, as, a, as an avatar of the Chronicler, I'd love to um, do my own area of it, but that's a long way off. But yeah, a lot of American stuff already overlaps with the UK um, without having to try too hard with it. But maybe I'm soft. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel like, thinking about the... I don't want to get into dwelling to things that have been done in the war game, but... I was thinking about um, some of the stuff that's been written for the UK that I don't like as much is very self-consciously UK, like trying to be yes. explain a lot about the UK and not doing a very good job of it. While the best example of like a UA thing from the UA is uh, Lamppost in Bloom, which doesn't have to be set in the UK at all. Yeah. And yet, to me, it feels more 
uh, authentically British in its presentation and writing than some of the other stuff that's been Most written. Most UA stuff doesn't feel really super localized in its character. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, this faction would only make sense in Chicago or Los Angeles. Um, a lot of the suffering up for that game feels like it's supposed to be able to be placed pretty much everywhere. And I think that's intentional. There's no reason you can't put the sect of the naked goddess in North Dakota. Yeah. No exactly. reason at all. Exactly. They have weird sex cults too. They have VHS stores and they're in just bad, as bad a shape as anywhere else. I, I think part of the urge comes from it is really fun to look into your hometown and try to find all the weirdness and put that into your campaign or look into some other city and do some research there and see what you can include. I mean, fuck, uh, pretty much all of our uh, local deep dive episodes have been exactly that, pretty much. Um, it's a lot of fun, but... Um, far as when you're writing something like a source book, um, I, I think it's more about an intangible character rather than like, okay, British, if we're doing a British source book, we need to include something about uh, phone booths, and we need to include something about rock and roll, and we need to include something about the punk movement. You know, like, hey, if you have a cool idea for that, go for it, but it's not some checkbox you have to tick. Have you heard of witches? These are witches. Here's my description of witches. Yes taken from wikipedia anyway moving on yeah well just gonna say the uh the cult of the naked goddess uh definitely isn't as big in the uk anymore that's well, different yeah your entirely. guys porn industry has some very interesting things that's happened to it hasn't it yeah yeah um the good old days of english pornography definitely uh it's still around but it was one of the in the 2000s it was huge um it was, it was definitely on par to compete with uh america Never came to pass. What a shame. Um, <laughs> Maybe for the best, to be honest. It might, might be for the best, actually. Well, uh, as much as I enjoy talking about pornography, the stranger in a pub, um, uh, I think we may need to get going here, Thompson. We got we got a Brexit out of here. Yeah. Uh, we also we need to get. A, passed out friend here somewhere safe I don't think this place is safe especially in the long term for someone unconscious alright um well it's been a it's been a pleasure talking to you sir alright no. Tom I think we're gonna it has it alright well fuck you too then <laughs> <laughs> alright Thompson uh I, I think we're gonna this is gonna be a two person job to carry this guy and uh we got a lot of doors we're gonna be getting through all right. Do you even know where right. this guy lives? I don't know. Let's go through this door. All right. Oh, we'll drop him at a bus stop or something. Oh my God, it's bigger on the inside. Yeah, that's what they all say.
day before yesterday, I picked my car up for a garage. Geezer says, over there, mate, keys in the ignition. And I look, I cannot bloody believe it. The car is only four foot long. I said, I said what's this? He goes, it's your car. I said, what do you mean, it's my fucking car? He said, oh, that was what it was like when you drove it in here. No, I said, don't fuck me about. How did I drive that in? It's only two foot six tall. He goes, you must have put on some weight. I thought I was going fucking mad. Then the manager comes out. I said, what the fuck's going on here? I said, I paid good money for this. He goes, what's wrong with it? I said, what do you mean, what's fucking wrong with it? I said, look at the size of it. He goes, what? I said, it's only about four fucking foot long. What the fuck have you done to it? Then he says, oh, well, that's how it came in. He goes, I particularly remember that one because I used to have one myself. A fucking four-foot Vauxhall car, and oh fucking yes. And I said, is that it then? I said, is that what I have to drive away? And I said, it's your car, take it or leave it, it's up to you. So I just had to fucking squeeze into it, didn't I? Fucking knees round me ears, and this four-fucking-foot car is only two-foot-six tall. I mean, what am I, fucking noddy? Fucking naughty!